Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 50. I am super excited today, obviously, to bring you our interview, as I always am, but also because I just recorded the last interview of the first year of Progressions. Don't worry, I already backed it up and double-checked the audio. So I'm feeling pretty damn good, not gonna lie. So on to the introduction. Today I had what I thought was an interesting idea, And after a little research and a couple YouTube videos, though, I realized it was a bit more to bite off than I should for a quick intro, but you know we're going to do it anyway, except with a little progressions twist to, you know, trim it down. So I had this idea to talk about gamification. Gamification is the idea that you can integrate video game style rewards and levels into your habit building and your goals. Popped into my head because it was mentioned in a newsletter I got. That's neither here nor there. So for any of my listeners that have gotten into gamifying their life in any way, then they know that it gets deep. There are apps for it that let you team up with other players and earn points together, which means you are accountable because there's another person depending on you so that they can level up and you earn points and you buy stuff for an imaginary character, so on and so forth. So yeah, so it gets crazy and I'm not doing it myself, so I don't feel like I can suggest it to you confidently, but I think there are a lot of ideas to take away from it that you can apply to your life and your career, regardless of whether you want to turn your life into an RPG. See, it's the psychology behind why gamification even draws people in and works that I think is the most valuable part. Okay, so here's the first takeaway and the most obvious. People like to be rewarded. We all know that. If you've ever played a video game, then you know you earn rewards. The problem with big long-term goals, though, like building a music career, is that there are not a lot of rewards to be had for all the small wins that you need to compound up over time to create a lasting career. Think about everything you've got to do in a music career. You've got to write a song, then you've got to produce and record it, then you've got to mix it, now you have to do the artwork, then you have to plan the release, you've got to put it out, and finally you have to promote it. All that so you get the reward of torturously watching your streaming numbers on an hourly basis to decide whether the song was a success or not. And that can be a satisfying reward if you're one of the biggest artists in the world, but it is far more likely that it will take a long time for that song to grow in popularity and get picked up by playlists, etc. So that makes it not very rewarding. There's not a lot of incentive to jump right back on the horse and start the whole cycle again. I think a lot of creators in general kind of avoid getting things out there in the world because of this. They would much rather start idea after idea and never actually get them out there to start growing and compounding because there's no immediate reward. But without getting your work out there into the world, there is no way to start a career. So let's steal a trick from gamification. Give yourself a reward. If you love starting ideas and you have trouble finishing them, don't let yourself start a new idea until you spent two hours already that day on finishing an old one. Or maybe after you release a song, reward yourself with a day trip to the beach or the mountains instead of sitting at home and refreshing the numbers all day. Find some kind of reward for the little wins because you've got to keep them going and rewarding yourself will help that. So here's another idea from gamification that says a lot about humanity, really. It's rankings and status. If you're playing a game, you're always ranking up and you're trying to have the highest score. I mean, it's as basic as pinball, right? This has already been very effectively used against you in marketing. Think about all the workout apps or social media apps that have encouraged you to do something to compete with others. People get obsessed over them. Anybody my age would remember the app Foursquare. You checked in at locations and got rewarded points or something so that everybody could see who goes there the most and then they are crowned king. 
And I'm sure it was all just a vessel for data mining and marketing and advertising, but nobody really thought about that. Nobody cared. They just wanted to get points and they wanted to be king. Or think about all the apps that allow you to compete with your friends by doing workouts or miles cycled or whatever they're tracking. Anybody that ever did one of those with a friend group knows it was probably one of their best workout months ever. I mean, look at Peloton. Now, I haven't joined that cult, but I'm pretty sure there's unlockable achievements and workout rankings, right? Okay, so if rankings and status is being used by corporations to so easily convince you to do basically anything, why would you not try to use it on yourself? Why not start your own competition with a music friend? Say you want to learn piano and they want to practice making beats. How about you make it as easy as putting an X on the calendar every day you do your thing? And the person with the least X's at the end of the month has to buy the other one lunch or drinks. Now you're using that human urge to compete and rank higher to your advantage when it comes to shaping your good habits. So here's the last one I wanted to mention. It's related to the result of your friendly competition from the previous example. There's got to be something at risk. Think about it. So many classic video games started you out with like three lives. Then you had to start over or you had to insert some more quarters to continue. Dating myself with a little arcade reference there. So if you're competing with a friend and the loser buys lunch, you're going to work all the harder. Because people don't like it when there's something on the line to lose. The only thing that might drive people more than wanting to win is not wanting to lose. And those things sound like they'd be the same, but there is a very different mental approach. There are even actually accountability apps that let you put money on the line. If you don't complete your goal, it gets donated to a cause you don't like or goes to a friend or wherever you choose, which to me all sounds absolutely crazy. But hey, if it motivates you to hit your goals, go for it. So point being, if you can put something on the line when shaping your habits and your work ethic, it might inspire you to hit your goals. So in conclusion of all of this, what I think the takeaway is, is not whether gamifying your life will help you achieve what you're after, but that there are a lot of ways to work around the internal mental blocks that we all face every day. Stuff like tapping into the competitive nature of people, or the risk-reward factor, or group accountability, etc., Somewhere out there is a tool or a trick that can help you push yourself. So I encourage you to go out and try different things and find the one that works for you. Today's guest is Grammy-winning mastering engineer Evren Gochnar. It is tough to get more veteran than somebody like Evren. He spent 25 years on staff at Capital Mastering in Hollywood and now works independently from his own studio, Evren Gochnar Mastering. His credits include artists like Kiss, Smashing Pumpkins, Mariah Carey, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Beastie Boys, and NBC's The Voice. He's also recently written a book called Major Label Mastering, which has been released on Rutledge. So we're getting into all things mastering today. Welcome to the show, Evren Gochnar. Hey, Evren, what's up, man? Hey, Travis. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah this is going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be great. Thanks for taking the time. I know I'm sure you're busy, but uh, it's been like, I don't know six months, eight months since I talked to you? It was, it's been a second. Yeah, yeah. It's been a few minutes. Uh, yeah, we we're touching base uh, with the changes with the pandemic. And then uh, obviously, yeah, we were both uh, at Capital and Capital decided to, you know, close down their mastering, which sort of, you know, inspired me to, to continue on with my own mastering studio and my clients and stuff. So it's been really exciting and fun, actually. That's awesome. And well, I got to say, congrats on the book. Thank you. When did you start that? Was that a pandemic project or were you working on it beforehand? I was working on it before. It was actually kind of a long-term project. So it really sort of started because I was teaching uh, the, the mastering class at Cal Poly Pomona. I did like a few terms of that as an adjunct professor, sort of a, you know, lecturer. And when I was teaching it, I started to realize that although there were there are a couple of really good books that I like as well about mastering, there wasn't really one that was kind of step-by-step and that I felt could kind of get through some of the concepts in a didactic way so that the students could kind of get like more of a, a substructure, kind of a scaffolding, a concept of, hey, if someone gives me a file, obviously it applies if someone gives you, you know, an analog mixed down tape as well, but it's just rare these days. But if someone gives you a file and says, hey, master this, like, you know, what do you do? Like, what does that mean to you if you're trying to be the mastering guy? And so I basically started thinking about a book, you know, that would approach a mastering from that kind of perspective. And it started probably in about 2017, actually. It took me about three years to write, to be honest with you. It was like a, 
That was one of the hardest things I ever had to do because, you know, you come to an agreement. I found the publisher and then we came to an agreement and I signed a book deal. And then like, you know, eight months, 10 months later, they're calling and they're like, where's the book? (laughs) 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 And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, I got the table of contents and the outline done. Uh, Can you can you give me like a couple more months? You know, it was kind of like one of these deals because I had, you know, I have a job and I have a young family and it was um, one of the toughest things about it, Travis, was that I had to actually stop anything else other than work and working on the book. So like, you know, I like to play ice hockey sometimes. I cut that out. I like to go to a yoga class. I had to cut that out. It was challenging, but I made it through, you know, thank goodness. And so, yeah, that's really the story. And And the publisher was patient enough with me to where they would be like, hey, you know, we can give you a little more time, but make sure it's gonna be done in this little window. And so, yeah, there were some definitely a lot of all-nighters. <laughs> That's cool, man. Well, you know, I've never talked to anybody that that actually wrote a book. How did you know what the process was? Like, I'm going to write a book. First, I'm going to outline it. And then I'm like, how, how, how did you even start? I guess is my question. <laughs> it's a really good question. You know, I guess a couple things inform that. I had created at, at a certain point, probably going back to about 2013, I had been approached by some students. I, I think I did a little talk on mastering at an AES meeting, and they were like, hey, do you do any kind of like workshop or anything like that? And I said, well, I think I could probably get that together. And I, and I did write, you know, I created like sort of an outline, and I did write a 10-session workshop that I actually gave a few times when people ah, would kind okay. of ask me about it. And I took that, and that sort of turned into the chapters of the book, actually, so, yeah, I think uh, it, it's a process that, uh, you know, it's my first time as well. I will say this. I was an English major in college, so I did do a fair amount of writing and reading. But the process is basically come up with like kind of an outline that's really going to become a table of contents and then write a sample chapter. So you just pick one. And that had to go to the publisher. So okay. that went to the publisher first, and then they sent it to people in the field. Now, Rutledge is actually an academic publishing house. So they do like a lot of technical books. You know, you might have books there about acoustic properties of materials and circuit design and things that are actually a little more electrical engineering than what I specifically do. But they did have like one or two mastering books. But again, I felt like I had a little angle just having worked at Capital for so long and then having done this workshop, which I kind of felt was process oriented. Like I wanted people, I wanted students in my classes to go like, oh, I get it. If someone gives me this file to master, these are the things I have to do. But, you know, in addition to that, obviously you have to have a lot of experience as a musician or someone who's an audiophile. So what happens is they look at that chapter and, and the way I did it, and I'm just going to kind of, because that's really what I know about. I know you can, you know, you can write anything and publish <laughs> it, right? But right. Um, the way I did it was they had like four people that were, you know, people they trusted, experts in the field. Actually, one of them was Greg Calby. I told Greg Calby, I asked him specifically because I knew him. I was like, hey, can you look at this chapter? It's a book proposal. Uh, there's a questionnaire from the publisher, and he was kind enough to do that for me. And they had three other people, and they basically vote, like, should this be published or not? Oh, and wow. so they send those questionnaires back to the publisher. So they did, you know, fortunately for me, like, they unanimously voted to publish it. That's when I kind of got the book deal part of it. It's not as big and fancy as it sounds, but it was, you know, something. And then after that, it's just up to me. So it's like, that's what's so hard about it. It's like you and your laptop in a room and your idea, and it's like, go. And so I think what was hardest about it for me is that because life kept kind of interfering, like I would write chapter, say, four, and then I would be like a year later writing chapter 14. And I would realize once I was kind of proofreading it that I was writing the same chapter sometimes. (laughs) And so that's like what's really hard because you write what you know, what's at the top of your mind, you write, and you're like, wait a minute, man, I wrote this in chapter four, what am I doing? And so you have to go and edit that out and change it. And so, you know, it was a real eye opener. I mean, it was, I'm not gonna lie, it was very, very hard. (laughs) It was very, very hard. And that was another one of the reasons is like, you're like, you know what, in the back of your head, like, 
this better be good or else I'm going to get a bunch of my peers like Travis, you know, saying that I'm like an idiot over here. So, uh, you know, I got, so you really want it to be, you know, articulate and good and kind of impart some information, you know, in a new way. Yeah. And so what happens is then you get it all together, the manuscript, you get all the diagrams and pictures together, which is another whole deal. Like I had to ask, you know, Pat and Paula, if I could go shoot photographs of gear in my room, gear behind B. And then you send it all over to them and they have a copy editor. But I did something. I have a buddy who does some copy editing. And I said, you got to read this uh, for me once. And he kind of picked out some things. I said, hey, you know what? Like, look at this sentence structure here or look at this uh, usage of this word here. And then I actually had our buddy Ian Sefcik read it once. Because I said, Ian, just read through this. Is there anything that seems technically you know, ridiculous in here. And, uh, you know, he did a favor for me. And fortunately, there wasn't really uh, too much of that. But, you know, and then I sent it to the, you know, the publisher, and they have someone read it more for just their what's called uh, their style guide. You know, it's, um, gosh, you know, if you use a comma or a semicolon here, and which is interesting, because what I realized is like, I could write anything, you know, and they're going to publish it because they had some faith in my, I think, background. And, but, you know, it's a little scary because you could really just write like anything and they're not going to be like, hey, you know what? I don't think a, a mic pre works that way. You know, they're not going <laughs> to, you know, flag you on it. Right. And so um, then, yeah, then they do it. And, you know, you get someone to help you design a cover. And it goes through then a phase called typesetting, which is very interesting because it has to fit in the size of the book. Like I think mine's like seven by nine. And so you, they actually fit it like, a you know, and they when they do that, they kind of screw things up. Like they make some pictures too big and some too small. So you have to send it back with all these notes. I mean, it's like a lot of iterations. And then you give them the sign off and they uh, and they press it up. And then you start, you know, promoting it and working on it and they've got it for sale on Amazon and you try to, you know, do the whole thing, get reviewed. It's like putting out a record, you know, you, you start getting people reviewing it. But that's really the process in a nutshell. I, I was, you know, I was inspired a bit. My brother has a few books out. He's an academic. So he also kind of was like encouraging okay. about it. Yeah. So I, I was I was glad to have, have gone through it and it's been well received. I, I think that mostly people are getting a lot out of it. So I also just because, you know, Travis, you as well, you know, we had a really unique opportunity and experience when we were at Capitol. You know, it's like not that common. Right. right. And so I didn't know this at the time that they would kind of close the mastering or whatever. But I knew that there were things that I was, you know, afforded as far as types of projects to work on, catalog things from the archives of Capitol that were really unique and were really beneficial to me in my development. And I kind of felt like, you know what, like this is going to be an era that may not be accessible to students of music technology moving forward. And I thought this would be a cool sort of document like, hey, what did a guy do if he was on staff at Capital Mastering in this little period, you know? Yeah. Um, and I feel good that I was able to do that because I didn't know it, but they closed <laughs> the facility, you know, uh, not long after. So. Yeah, it, it, that was the deal. And it, and it came out during the pandemic. It came out, you know, kind of in the, in the middle of the pandemic. So, man, that sounds that sounds daunting, dude. That is epic. I'm, I'm so stoked that you actually did that for three years, man. That's impressive. You took the pictures, you gathered the graphics. That's awesome, man. I'm, I, I think it's awesome. Yeah, it, w it was definitely intense. But, you know, even for me, like it's almost like in some ways, it's like, you know, a yearbook of some of the things that we, you know, that I experienced working at Capitol. I mean, you know, I know that a lot of a lot, I've gotten some feedback and, and people in reviews have been like, oh, man, you know, you can either, you know, learn about this process or you can just geek out on these pictures. You know, it's like, you know, so, cool. you know, it's kind of cool. That's cool. You know, you uh, you hinted at it. And in like in my little research beforehand, I didn't realize that you uh, that you went to uh, University of Michigan, right? And you did English. So yeah. there's this, there's a big, hard um, uh, scene change there to, to end up in music. Can we go back to like your musical roots and like how you ended up working your way to 25 years of capital? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when I was like, you know, I've always really been passionate and interested in music. And when I was like, I was always listening to it. I had older siblings that were playing albums. I always really really responded to and was in, was um, kind of enthralled by music and musicians and instruments. And so when I was about 10, which 
in today's day and age, it's kind of late. I was like, I asked my parents for piano lessons and I started playing piano. You know, I think overall I enjoyed that. It felt a little structured. And then so when I was about 15, I was getting really into rock and roll and I started playing guitar. You know, I had an acoustic guitar and I got an electric guitar and I was, you know, just spent hours, like hours and hours listening to records, learning guitar solos, learning songs and stuff like that. But, you know, I think I didn't feel like I wanted to necessarily major in music. I'm not really sure why, but I decided to just do a liberal arts degree in English. Could have been, you know, my family was kind of a conservative family and maybe I just didn't feel like it it was a, a, a good thing to to jump into right away. But over the four years at college, you know, I really, you know, was still gripped by my passion for music. And when I uh, finished, I was like, you know, I really want to, you know, play guitar, write songs, sing, do these kinds of things. And so I uh, decided to enroll at uh, Musicians Institute and I went to their guitar program, called, which is known as GIT. When I graduated college, I went there for a year and it was actually really, really great for me. It was a one-year program. I was exposed to like an incredible array of really accomplished musicians, guitarists, primarily then. Not all of them were doing styles I liked. I was kind of like a, you know, rock, uh, you know, indie rock, blues kind of guy, a little bit of jazz. But, you know, you had, you know, metal people. And, and these would be like just luminaries from the day, like people like Paul Gilbert or... Um, uh, oh God, names escape me. But people that would be like, you know, you watch them play and you'd be like just totally mesmerized because you're like, how can people play guitar like this? It's like remarkable. And this was also kind of in the heyday of shredding oh, yeah. when everyone was just like ripping, you know, like, all the time, like ripping the solos. And so it was, uh, you know, I was not really, I'm not a player like that. But, you know, when I look back, I felt like it was really a kind of a, a concentrated foray into kind of music and kind of rock and roll music and bands. And so when I got out, I started just, you know, uh, looking for bands, auditioning for bands out of like at the time it was the recycler. There wasn't even an Internet and, you know, finding people to jam with and play with. And then we'd play shows around Hollywood. And then I started writing my own songs and playing, you know, starting my own bands. At first I was like a side guy, like a guitar guy in a band. And then I was a, the kind of the lead guy and I would write songs and I would uh, sing them and I would put bands together. And I did this for many, many years. Uh, I had a little label. I still have, it. it's called Spill Records. I put out like five full length records on that uh, of my own music. And we would do tours up the West Coast. So kind of did the whole indie thing. But here's what's, I guess, a little different about me is that Early on, when I finished, uh, was finishing up at MI, I had run into a guy also from Michigan. He was at MI too, which is rare. There were very few people that kind of went to the University of Michigan, and even if they were doing liberal arts degrees and kind of got into the arts, I mean, maybe people that were in music school or art school, but it was exceedingly rare. In fact, I know people like friends of mine were like, like what do you mean you're going to go like play guitar, or, like study guitar? <laughs> like, you know, it just seemed like very uh, weird to people and, you know, um, you know, Michigan has always been a pretty good school and it yeah. kind of um, seems to uh, generate, the culture seems to generate people who are going to uh, either like be a lawyer or run a business or maybe go into some more traditional type of a profession, you know. Uh, and this was not like that, you know. I mean, it was a bit of a left turn and it does come with its its sort of, I don't want to say heartaches, but it's just different, you know, the the buddies you had a year earlier, you know, you just felt like you couldn't relate to them because you were kind of making decisions based on your passions and based on your artistic inclinations and you're making your life decisions based on that. And so most people don't do that. I got to be straight up honest. I think that That's people true. who get into the recording arts and stuff are, are, you know, they're a little bit of a different breed for the most part. So, you know, that was something I obviously noticed and paid attention to. In addition to the fact that like, I just looked different, you know, like like by the time I graduated college, I sort of looked like a frat boy or something. And then like two years later, I had hair down to my, you know, shoulders and, you know, wear like leather jackets and look like a grunge guy. 
This is a little shocking to your buddies who are like on the golf course, let me tell you. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So, you know, it's just what you do and what happens. And, and, you know, it was just sort of my experience of it. But these are things that, you know, one of the reasons this is a small little detour. One of the things I love about Los Angeles is it's like kind of a welcoming town in that way. Like you can show up in LA and kind of have an intention or a dream, something you want to pursue that seems a little weird in your hometown. But in LA, people are going to be like, oh, okay, that's cool. And they may even be like, hey, you know what? I know somebody who know who runs a studio who might be able to give you a good uh, studio time, or I know somebody who does X, Y, or Z. And you realize there's kind of a culture and a community that supports that. So my buddy from Michigan, I, I'll never forget this. It was at the intersection of uh, like Tahunga and Riverside. We were somehow in cars in tr- classic LA fashion. We were next to each other, I think. Yeah. And he's like, hey, what? I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm working at a recording studio. I'm like, really? A recording studio? What's that like? He's like, oh, it's pretty cool. Just, you know, look in the back of Music Connection. There's all these like, you know, wanted ads, people, they're looking for people, you know, at these studios. And I'm like, really? And so I did exactly that. It sounds so stupid, right? <laughs> I just opened up the back of Music Connection. There was a section called Miscellany in there. They may still have it in there. And I was still finishing up MI, but like there was like an internship at a recording studio, North Hollywood. And I call him up and I go and I walk in and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm interested in interning here, learning a bit about what happens in a recording studio. And they're like, do you know anything about recording? I'm like, no, I know nothing. And so I would just go in there once a week and like sweep the floor and I would roll up cables, you know, and, you know, it was just kind of a smaller operation. I think the owner had some publishing money. He was a songwriter and he had had this little studio going. And so that was like just a few months. I don't think I really learned much at all there, but what it allowed me to do is I kept looking in the back of Music Connection and one day there was an ad in there for someone to work at a larger studio. It's called Paramount Recording, which believe it or not is still around and they actually kind of expanded. And they wanted someone to kind of run their office, you know, and I walked in and I said, yeah, you know, I've, I've been doing this kind of internship at, a, at another studio, but, uh, you know, and, you know, I think I presented well enough for them. I think they were the kind of guys, the owners, uh, they liked that I had a degree and they liked that, um, you know, I was sort of, you know, had some experience in a studio. So it kind of like started spiraling up. So I got that job and I was really just giving studio tours and, and booking studio time and answering the phone. It's not what I really wanted to do, but, you know, I did tell them I was interested in, you know, having my bands come in or learn about engineering. And so that's what started happening there is I would just hang out with the engineers when I could. Uh, The guys in the office, the owners would get very upset with me because sometimes I would sneak out of the office and go into the recording sessions and just look around (laughs) and, you know, make friends with the engineers. You know, I took some chances there. Like they'd be like, look, you can't go back there right now. And so, but eventually what happened was I went to them and I said, hey, you know what? Like, I'm uh, pretty confident I've got to, I'm able to do these overdubs. Like I'm able to get, you know, a a large diaphragm condenser mic up and get the, uh, you know, get it going through a mic pre and a compressor and getting it going to the tape machine. You know, the first thing you had to learn was align the tape machine back then. And so I just asked, I said, hey, you can put me on some sessions if you like, where it's a kind of a limited type of an overdub session. I feel good about that. And so they did that. And slowly, and I ended up working there for like five years, I you know, became an engineer there. I was doing like full-on sessions, you know, recording and mixing. And, you know, I was able to work with some, you know, kind of some interesting artists. That's actually when I worked with like Tupac and I worked with... Um, you know, Carol King and the cult and these people would come through. And again, this is one of the beauties of Los Angeles is that, you know, you're just a kid in some studio and sometimes you got like legends coming through the studio. Oh yeah. Right. So Epic sessions. it's just like, yeah, it's just one of those things. And, and I don't, you know, I didn't really plan that part of it, but you know, it sort of uh, worked to ultimately my advantage. And I just like, I think, um, you know, Travis and I were chatting just before we started, you know, there came a point when I was kind of like 
you know, wanted to continue to rehearse with my bands at night, do some recording, play shows. And like the 18 hour days were sometimes getting in the way. And so the owners would call me and they'd be like, hey, we got a session uh, on this night, this day. Can you make it? And I'd be like, well, no, I got a, a, a show that I'm playing, you know, whatever, somewhere. And, you know, it was kind of this, a little bit of this back and forth. Fortunately, it would work out to where when I was at that studio, although I was an independent contractor, I was still probably getting close to 40 hours a week of work. Yeah. But, you know, it's also the kind of gig where you could be doing an 80 hour week and then you might have like a, a three hour week. You know, it's just like a lifestyle that been there was a little I found challenging when I was trying to work in my creative life. And so I ended up, I had gone to a, a mastering session with one of my clients at Bernie Grumman's. It was a Carol King record, Color of Your Dreams, like in the early 90s. And I kind of was like, oh, this guy, like, you know, and obviously he's very legendary, but um, I'm like, you know, these guys, like he comes in and does this and leaves at like six, you know, or five. <laughs> I mean, it was like really interesting to me from a practical standpoint. Like I was like, and then there, I had other friends who one went to work at a place called Pacific Ocean Post. And he's like, you know, he's like, dude, it's like banker's hours. You know, I come in here, I do, you know, post-production and mastering. I come in the morning and I leave at five. And I was kind of like, what? Like you got, that's what your work day is like? And so I got very interested in this from a very practical standpoint. Like, so I, I don't want this to come off like I'm a... Um, <laughs> You know, dissing mastering, or I'm not because uh, I'm I'm a dedicated mastering engineer and, and I take it seriously. But my first inclinations about mastering were really that it was a kind of a manageable work week and work life. Totally, like that was really like what was compelling to me about it. And I know that sounds like maybe overly practical, but I do tell this to my students too. I'm like, you know, as you're going along on your path, whatever you're doing creatively or musically, you know, pay attention to what's important to you. Pay attention to, uh, like, like I had a lot of friends who were engineers who were like maybe older than me by 10 years. And I was like, man, I don't want to end up like you, bro. Like as much as I love you, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, these guys were like, and I'm not, dissing them. These are people I actually truly care about and love, but it's like, these are people that were like, you know, struggling to pay rent in a, like a closet size apartment in Hollywood. Uh, and they've been doing this for like 15 years. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? And these guys were good. I mean, like they just knew what was going on, right? Yeah. They knew circuits, they knew electronics, they could manage sessions, they had name clients, but still I was like, man, like, I don't know if I can, you know, handle this. Right. So I started calling around. This time I got the Mix Master Directory. He used to come out. They'd come out the mastering studios, <laughs> Mix. And I get, got my resume together and I would just like call them up. I'd be like, hey, you know, I'm an engineer. I'm interested in getting into mastering. And um, can I send you my resume? I'm interested in this. And, you know, you yeah. get a lot of like uh, people slamming the phone down. But it, when I called Capital, it was Pete Papa Georges who, did you know Pete Papa Georges? I met him a couple times, but yeah, no, no, not, okay, not yeah. really. He yeah. was managing mastering. So I called, it's Pete Papa Georges who was like, he was like a really, you know, he's a really personable kind of fun loving guy and, and, you know, bright guy. But he was like, oh yeah. He's like, yeah, bring your resume down. You know, it was kind of like, you know, I don't know if he was joking around with me or not. Like he's just <laughs> like, yeah, just drop it off, man. And so I call him back and he's like, yeah, I got it. And then what was, and this is the important thing, I think it goes to kind of Travis's point about kind of intentions, success, and kind of networking. Now, like, I'm not really a, a, a smarmy, like, network for the sake of networking kind of guy, but I am naturally social. And I think this is something that's very important. Like, I was just talking to a guy who had moved to town a few years ago the other day. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, why didn't you ever call me up or email me before? He's like, oh, he's like, I'm kind of shy. And I was like, you know, without really hesitating, I'm like, you know what? That's all good. You can be shy. I'm like, you have to be social. I'm just like, you have to be social. Yeah. yeah. Don't even, you know, don't even repeat to yourself that you're shy. You have to know people. If you don't know people, you're not going to really get your, your hat in the ring when it matters. So, to the point, True. the owners of Paramount had this friend, uh, Robin Bechtel, wonderful woman, and she was working at Capitol Records in new media, which was what became like, you know, the beginnings of the internet and websites for artists. But she was a friend of mine, and I'd met her through the owners at Paramount, right? And 
When I dropped my resume off, I called her up and I said, hey, Rob. And I was like, you know what? I just dropped my resume off. Can you go down and give me like, like a character reference? You know, because, you know, you know me and just say, look, you know, this, this guy, you know, he, he's a hard worker and I, I've known him for a number of years. And so she did this for me. And Amazing. Pete Papa George, I'll never forget this. Later, Pete Papa George told me, he's like, when I, when he's like, when I got your resume, he's like, we had a stack. He's like, I put it on the bottom. And then Robin Bechtel goes down and says uh, to his boss, like, you got to hire this guy. He's great. And then he told me, he's like, I took your resume from the bottom and I put it on the top. <laughs> <laughs> so here is the power of kind of, you know, you, you got to be good. You know, I tell this to everyone, you know, I'm sure Travis gets this too, because he's an artist, he works with artists. You know, a lot of people kind of approach it with me. They'll be like, hey, they don't come out and say it, but they're like, can you get me signed basically? Or do you think my song or my band or my artistry is good enough? Like, like you know, do you know anybody? And so I kind of, I don't manage artists. So, um, you know, don't listen to this podcast <laughs> and call me up and say, hey, I want a record deal. But uh you know, there's two things that I, I think are really, really important to take away that I tell artists if they if they ask me. I'm like, look, I'm like, there's two things that are always going to be part of your career. One is your offering. Like, how good are you? Like, do you do a good job? Are you professional? Do you show up? Do you know what you're talking about? Do you get a good result? Do you listen well to your clients so that you understand the genre of their music, the style of their music, what can make it better, or, 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 or and do you know when to shut up? And then the second thing <laughs> is, is, is your advocacy. And your advocacy is who vouches for you? Who do you associate with? Who do you work with? And they're both really important. So let's just go to the beginning. Like when an artist comes to me and they're like, hey man, I got a song, like what do you think? And I kind of tell them that little uh, breakdown because it's very important to pay attention. Like if, you, if you're weak on your offering, then you got to write better songs, get better bandmates, make better recordings. If you're weak on your advocacy, you got to start with, you know, you get your family and friends to come to your shows. Then you got to get the booking agent at the OK Club in town. Then you get the booking agent at the Good Club in town. And you make friends with the bands that are playing good festivals. You try to get to be friends with the person who books the good festivals, and et cetera, et cetera. Ideally, you're going to get at some point to someone at a label uh, somewhere that's going to kind of really advance you. And so this is an example of that in my mastering trajectory because I had the offering, really. I don't think that my resume was any worse than any other resume there. I had five and a half years of professional experience recording. Right. But the other stack of people didn't have Robin Bechtel to come down and personally go into the director of the studio's office and say, you got to hire this guy. Yeah. So I didn't like plan it. I mean, I did request this, you know, but this is something that seemed very kind of natural the way it came about. And long story short is I got hired there in the mastering department and I took the gig and it was kind of after recording and mixing, which is very fun and exciting. It was a little mundane, but I wanted to be a mastering guy. And, and believe it or not, I had well, it was like four interviews to to get hired at Capital. I had the my immediate supervisor, that Pete guy. I had the director, the guy that Robin went to. I had the head of the tech department at that time. Oh wow! And then HR. I had four. It's kind of shocking to think about. You'd it. Go like, you know, it, four it was interviews. Like, Jeez. Yeah, it was really like you know, like you were you were showing up at a kind of a a place in an organization, and that's maybe another story for another time. You know, Capital is. You know, it's a very corporate environment, and I feel fortunate to have worked in that environment and and very lucky in a lot of ways, and maybe in ways I didn't know at the time. You know, I was still like, hey, do I want to take this gig? Uh, you know, I'm going to be making 1630 tape copies to start. You know, it's like, eh. But I knew I wanted to get into mastering. I wanted to be a mastering engineer, and this was the way in. And so, you know, I did it. I worked on the night shift. You know, I had kind of a, you know, it wasn't the greatest shift, but I just did these things, and I was, you know, I was like, yeah, sure. And I would start to apply what I learned uh, from recording and mixing to mastering. And slowly, I had people that used to record with me get like, hey, can you master for me as well? Can you, you know, I'm like, and I'd be like, sure. I'll, you know, I'm learning about it, but sure. And it kind of grew from there. I, I started working with the catalog department at Capital, and those are big name recordings and records. Yeah. Some of them are behind me. Um, you know, they're just stuff you heard on the radio when you were a kid, and so. In many ways, like I, I can't 
uh, as, as much as capital may have some ups and downs and some corporate drama, you know, I'm like really fortunate yeah. to have worked there. No, it's, it's a, it's an, it was an amazing environment. And yeah. Hey, uh, I just want to say you're the offering and the advocacy, you know, for our listeners is so true. I don't, nobody on the show has kind of laid that out that way. Like you have to master your skill set, but almost more importantly, you have to understand how to present yourself and to, how to like network in a not slimy Hollywood way, because relationships matter is another one of my um, recent interviews is something that, yeah. that they said. And, you know, if you ha- didn't have a good relationship with Rob, if you had a bad relationship with, with Robin and she saw you walking through the halls, she would have said, hey, who hired this guy? You know, he's not very good. So it goes either way. It's a small business. And, you know, especially when you're in a place like Los Angeles feels really massive, I think, to somebody that shows up. But like when you really get into it, there's only so many studios, there's only so many mastering studios, there's a lot of interaction. So it, you know, being able to be a uh, an advocate for yourself in like you don't want to be a, you don't want to be cocky, you don't want to be a you don't want to be like that. But Everin hit it right on right on the head with that. And then so the question I have for you, Everin, is so you had your musician path, you had your recording engineer path, and then you know you get into the mastering world. Do you think that informs some of the decisions that you make from the mastering chair? The fact that you've been the player and that you've been the engineer putting it together and you've been the mixer? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And yeah, all those things inform what I do in the mastering chair. Everything from, you know, having written like hundreds of songs to playing shows to singing and playing guitar to listening to uh, albums. Uh, The recording thing is really, really big because... You know, I think that there aren't a lot of mastering engineers that do this, to be completely honest. Like, you know, I'm able to, like, if someone gives me, like, a rock track or a type of track that I would have mixed, like, years ago, I might I might say things like, hey, you know, right away I'm going to key in, like, oh, so you panned the drums, drummer perspective, not listener perspective, or, you know, these things that sometimes if you're coming at it right from the technical thing, you may not key into. Because obviously the first thing you learn is, one of the first things you learn as an engineer is how to record a drum kit. And you got to make a decision. Like, are you going to have it come out of the speaker's drummer perspective or listener perspective? Now, I've always been a drummer perspective guy because it's easier to air drum. That's right. But I know both of them work. But these types of things, you know, and and what's beautiful about that is it really gets you into uh, thinking and listening about imaging and what's happening on the right side versus the left side, how they interrelate. So absolutely, 100%. And I think, like, that's one of the things I actually, you know, talk about sometimes is that, you know, mastering is sometimes deceptively simple. Like, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, bro, you get like this ozone or you get this uh, fab filter and you kind of run it through here and you're done. But it's also actually... At the same time, it can be really exceedingly complex and all these things intersect like, you know, hey, how does this feel? Like, what's the vibe? Is it coming through? Is the chorus paying off enough? Are the dynamics correct? Like, are we coming from like a kind of a gentle intro and first verse? And then when the chorus comes in, is it impactful enough? All these things start to kind of feed in. And a lot of these things are just natural. Like if you picked up your acoustic and you start playing a song and singing it, you're naturally going to like do something maybe busier in the chorus with your right hand. You're going to sing a little higher register. You know, these natural uh, crescendos and decrescendos and things that affect impact are are taking place. And it's like you really want that naturalness to be present in the master, in the end result. And so, you know, I know that like I've looked online, you know, you look online, certain mastering guys will say or or women will write that, um, oh, you know, I kind of have an imposter complex because although I'm doing mastering, like I'm not a musician and I didn't like really play in ensembles or bands or things. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I can speak, you know, you know, from my own experience that it's really, really important also because when we go back to the relationship discussion, like, you know, usually when I turn in a master for someone, I've all, I also, as I've been listening to it for a period of time, I'll be like, hey, you know, like this, you know, kind of harkens to X, Y, and Z album that are great albums that I remember listening to. And, you know, I like what you're doing here. And I'll kind of make references, and I think that's really important for the artist. I've had people sometimes say, like, hey, can I use your comment? Like, I'm going to post this on my Instagram. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, because it's the truth. Yeah. 
And I think that when when people are effectively kind of creating their their brand of art, but it but it may be pulling from some things you know that are also really excellent. I mean, I don't think there's no there's no harm or foul there. I'm not saying it's like plagiarism, but if I identify that, if I'm like, hey man, I hear like some talking heads in here or some Bob Dylan or something, like to me that's a big compliment to give to somebody. Like I worked on someone's the other day, and I'm like, man. This reminds me of Peter Gabriel's So, like the album So. And I had to qualify. I'm like, and I'm like, that is a complete compliment. Don't take that as like it's 80s dated or something. Right. Because if you listen to songs like Big Time or those Peter Gabriel songs from then, like, dude, they're just incredible. So good. They're just, they're ju- you're just like going like, what is happening? If you listen closely, you're like, listen to all this stuff and how it's working together. And it's just amazing, right? So, you know, yeah, I'm not even sure what the question was, Travis. Sorry, but <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> no, well, kind of con- continuing, the, you know, while you were talking, the other thing that I was thinking about is is I had another question, kind of that is now related because of what you said. I think that helps communication. Like when you can go to the artist and say, like, "Oh, I, I noticed how you guys did your painting or whatever." They under they're like all of a sudden I think they're like, "Oh, this guy knows music. He's not just going to make it louder and brighter." And so in today's world. Uh, I feel like mastering and mixing to a certain point as well have become this like, you know, you're online, you just like, you're like, oh, this is the guy or gal I want to work with. I just drop this in my shopping cart and buy myself five masters. And then they just send you some audio and you send it back. I feel like communication has been kind of falling apart. Do you do anything in like the online remote world to kind of make sure that you have a, you know, a relationship with these people and have a good understanding of where they're coming from? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's exceedingly important. I think like what you kind of alluded to is that, you know, I think the artist wants to know that you get it. And I kind of actually write yeah. about this in my book. I'm like, you know, you're really, you know, you're paid to listen to the music you know, if you're if you're mixing or recording, you're you're paid to to listen, right? And then oh, yeah. and then apply your your skills. But you know, you also have to listen really, really well to the the, uh, the the client. You gotta listen to the artist. You know, you gotta listen to what they say. And, and sometimes you don't have, like you may just get a few sentences or an email, but there's a lot in there sometimes. I mean, you can pull out things like, hey, I can tell that maybe this person's not that confident about their vocal performance in this recording. What can we do about that? How do we approach that? Or, you know, I had one guy once tell me they want a real dynamic master. And I said, can you play me an example or a reference? And he played me this slammed, <laughs> you know, super (laughs) undynamic thing. And I was like, you know what, you know, with all due respect, like you're not playing me a dynamic master here. And then we kind of had to get on the same page. But as far as with technology, you know, you you know, I'm still actually uh, getting my sort of website together and the online sort of exchange. So people who work with me, they have to email me, text me, or, you know, uh, find me on social media. And, we have to have a little discussion, you know, I don't really have the anonymous uh, portals set up just yet. I think I'll get there. But in that, I usually get the conversation about what's your genre, you know, who'd you record this with? I'm fortunate a lot of my a lot of my clients are just kind of producers that, uh, you know, continue to come back. So they may have a, a stable of artists and they just We'll send them, but you know, if I'm able to get the confidence of the producer, that's really helpful because they may have, like I said, a group of artists they work with that they can then, you know, at least offer my services up to. Yeah, yeah. Instead of, you know, it's harder when you're finding each artist one at a time. Again, that was one of the beautiful things at Capital as well is that you know you had the catalog stuff and the things the label was working on, and then you also had, you know, your independent producers and or artists that you might be meeting or knowing. Yeah. So I try to keep that personal touch going. I think it is really important and, and, and I do it sincerely. Like I, you know, I don't kind of fudge it or fake it or anything. Yeah. I think those are the, those are the best, best relationships is, you know, it, it can be like really hard. Like you said, you, somebody has said, you know, I want this to be dynamic, and then they play you, you know, like Ricky Martin live in La Vida Loca that's just like a square wave. Yeah. And, uh, like, once once you understand an artist or a producer and you guys can, like, you know what each other is saying, like, that's, it takes time to get there, and that's when, you know, you have a long-standing work relationship. Artists that I work with a lot, 
you know, I know what they want before they ask for it because I've been yelled at enough to figure out what they're about to ask for. And now, now we're good, you know? And so, yeah, yeah you gotta, yeah, yeah. you gotta find those people you really click with. And the only way to do that is to communicate. Another question for you, since, uh, this is kind of a weird question. You were at Capitol for so long working, you know, mainly out of the same room, at least the entire time I was working at Capitol, you were always in the same room. When you're in the same space like that, because, you know, a lot of kids that are maybe listening or working in their bedroom or they're maybe like going from like apartment to apartment or studio to studio. And so they don't even have like a reference point. But when you're in the same room for that long, when you make a change, is it very delicate? Like if you change converters, is it a long like A-B shootout of like whether this is necessary or when you add a piece of gear, is it like, I don't know, like I know the 10 things in here perfectly. Do I need this? Like, what do you do when you're in a space that long to like refresh yourself without like throwing yourself off, you know? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I remember, um, yeah, I was in that room a long time and I I did get used to it. I thought it translated well. I, I was used to you know, it's kind of funny because I know all the, all the mastering people, like, you know, they have like the ATCs and the PMCs and stuff. And I just got so used to using those, uh, the Tannoy, um, DMT2s, you know, that's, it's actually what I have at my personal uh, studio as well. And it's a very similar setup because I just got used to the way they sound. I use a single subwoofer with them. Uh, the, the subwoofer integrates well with the satellites and they translate really well to, you know, I think real world environments. So I still use them and, uh, you know, that's a big part of it, you know, relating to the environment and the speakers and, and how the environment and the speakers translate uh, to real world settings. But yeah, if something's going to change, it's a little nerve wracking for sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, yeah, I remember at one point, like Ian came in and I think it was the power amps were failing. Something was going on. And at that time, I think there was a little bit of some white EQs on the mains. Right. And they had been kind of tuned that way by an acoustician, you know, and it was pretty good. But, you know, it was kind of like the whites, I think the whites were failing is what was happening. So we kind of went to like a no EQ setup and I was like, oh man, this is going to be really, this is going to suck. And um, (laughs) Ian's like, oh man, just roll with it, you know? And I was like, and we had some good power amps. It was these class A's at the time. And, uh, you know, it was slightly different, but you know, it was true that I just kind of like adjusted. It wasn't as different as I thought. And also I think there was a kind of a purity in the line, you know, without the EQs, because, you know, there's the electronics yeah. and then the wiring and all this stuff. And so it was just kind of power amp to speaker. And I kind of really embraced that. Like, I actually do that in my own studio here. I just have these uh, Manly 352 power amps or model blocks. And it just has a, you know, eight foot, maybe seven and a half foot run of cable to the to the speaker. And it's just really immediate. And my monitor section is passive. It's a really clear and immediate uh, listen, you know, the, yeah. the audio. I, I feel like I can really discern a lot. But yeah, it is nerve wracking, even if, uh, you know, because there have been a bunch of iterations. I was in that same room, but there were a bunch of iterations of not only the signal path, the, the channel path, but the monitoring changed as well. I mean, initially, and this is kind of, you know, from a mastering engineer standpoint, it was shocking to admit, but when they first made that room, they had it uh, designed with a patch bay, right? Mm. And so, although it's not um, unheard of to have a patch bay in a mastering studio, it's like kind of, you know, it's not like what the cool kids do. (laughs) You know, I would bypass that patch bay initially because, you know, there are certain touch points, there are certain approaches that I think most mastering engineers embrace. And that's say like one of them, like don't have a patch bay, you know, have things you can have a mastering console that are, everything's directly kind of wired in and out of that, or, you know, make sure your gear is compatible as far as impedances, et cetera. And you can daisy chain together a really nice chain. Make sure your monitoring is really transparent. Like there should be uh, from your potentiometer to the speakers, you've got like uh, you know, it should just be wired to the power amp and from the power amp to the speaker and nothing else, right? right. Like, you know, you want to have just like really clear and and uninhibited signal paths. So 
Yeah, and, and you know, to be honest, like these are things that I kind of learned slowly because I think the zeitgeist at the time at Capitol, like when they made that, the room I was in, I think they thought it was going to be like a little bit of a, a multi-purpose room that might do like five one mixing and might do some mastering. But you know, when you when you design that way, you get like like a hell of fine, right? Yeah. You get a you get something that's not working the way it, it should. I think that over time, you know, I was able to kind of zero in on what works really well, you know, for a mastering chain. So like now I have like an old style, it's an unbalanced analog section in my analog chain and it's really clear and it's really quiet. I really kind of like it, you know, and it's pretty simple setup, but you know, these are the kinds of things that, you know, sometimes takes years to kind of hone in on and, and for you to, to decide on. I mean, I do like transformers and tubes, but I also use a lot of, you know, digital, uh, you know, certain plugins and digital processing, uh, etc. But to answer your question, you know, yeah, you try to change one thing at a time. I'd, I'd say that. Yeah. And it can be like a little like, you know, anxiety provoking, like, oh man, is this going to like all be like a house of cards and all fall apart? And I won't really relate to what's going on. But fortunately, you know, over time, uh, you know, I, I think it got to be a pretty good setup in there. Like, I liked the dangerous, I had a dangerous uh, console, essentially. And it was great for, especially the liaison, I could put different equipment on, insert buttons, and kind of switch things around. And, and it was good. I mean, it's a little more electronics than I have, say, now. Yeah. But it's good. But the beauty was, too, to be honest, is like when the pandemic started, you know, Capital asked all of uh, the mastering guys, like, hey, what can you do? Uh, remotely. And I, you know, I had kind of had this room a little bit as a band room and it had been purpose built, you know, like these walls are all within another wall. Like there's an air gap around all the walls Oh, great! and there's isolated electrical, you know, things like that. So I could kind of transition into doing work and I was doing like capitals, you know, their Amazon HD, the voice and these things. And there was not a hiccup. It wasn't like, oh man, like, you know, what's, what's Everin up to now? Cause it's just, it's a, like everything we're getting is a messed up, but I will say this in, in all honesty, like I did sort of take the best aspects of uh, my room at Capitol and I tried to apply them to what I kind of built out here. Nice. Amazing. Almost out of time. I got a couple questions for you. I know you had a short little stint of teaching at, uh, it was Cal Poly Pomona, right? Were there any, like, for our listeners who are interested in mastering, were there any, like, hang-ups that, like, every student had or questions that every student had? Like, the most common question, is there anything that you could share that's, like, a eye-opener? Yeah, I mean, I think once once you get past, like, really what is mastering and, like, what actually is taking place, I mean, it is always kind of referred to as one of the black arts. It always seems mysterious to people, like, what's happening in mastering. I, I actually have an idea for a subsequent book that I think may address some of the uh you know, the, the more mysterious aspects of, <laughs> of, of mastering, which can be kind of fun. But I think, I think that's a common one is like for kids, you know, I, I'm not saying kids in a uh, demeaning way, you know, students to understand is like, so, you know, this happens after mixing, before release. Um, I think that's key. And then maybe like, you know, just what I refer to as the primary colors, like you're using the same equipment essentially that is used in recording and mixing. You're using a, an EQ, a compressor, and then a limiter primarily. Obviously, there are other things and it branches off from there. But, you know, it's kind of grasping that those are the building blocks that you can start with and then get into more advanced stuff. So I think those are the two kind of student-oriented little hurdles to make sure everyone gets. Yeah, yeah, amazing, awesome. Uh, so I've got two questions that I end the show with all the time. The uh, The first question for you is, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah, this is good. I mean, I think quickly, like I kind of touched on it, was one was um, switching from kind of recording and mixing to mastering. Like I had to kind of, in some ways it was a step backward to take a step forward. You know, looking back, it was absolutely the right decision for me. You know, and to be honest, like I could never know, you know, that I would be able to be fortunate enough to have such kind of like a long tenure and then in that tenure be able to be working on some really uh, kind of important recordings and, and some really great artists. And so, you know, uh, I think success always to me really meant like 
doing the best that I could. I think that I'm, I'm fundamentally like an earnest personality. Like you just want to sort of make sure the client's happy and that the result of what you're doing is good. I think that's important. Like I never set out like even to be like, hey, I want to win a Grammy. Like I didn't write that in my journals per se, <laughs> but I did. Like I remember interviewing at Capitol and one of the questions I got, which is a standard interview question, but it's not that bad. It's like, what you know, what do you see yourself doing in five years? And this is like a really good thing to pay attention to in a way. And I, and I answered, I remember it was Jeff Minnick, who was the tech. I said, you know, well, I see myself working with clients, you know, and mastering albums for clients in, in a, in a setting like this, a professional setting. And, it, you know, it was kind of a simple answer, but you know, it did come true, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you do have to pay attention to the economics of it. You do have to pay attention to, you know, I think being solvent. These are important things. Like one time when I was teaching a class at uh, Cal Poly Pomona, like I asked my class, I said, do you guys know how much an engineer makes? Do you know, like, if you expect to work as a recording engineer, do you know what your salary might be or your hourly wage? And they had no idea. And I felt like this was a little bit of a, um, you know, a disservice to the students, oh, right? Yeah. Because let's compare it to if you come from a family or from a, a, a situation where you're like, hey, man, I'm going to be a lawyer because I never want to be out of work or I want to be a doctor because I love medicine. You know, you're also going to have a rough idea for the annual salary or maybe what you might be expect financially as you progress. And I think that this is important for the people that were doing that. I think that because it's a labor of love, a labor of passion, a lot of times people are just like, I don't care, man. I just want to put the mic in front of some cool musicians and record. It's going to be all great, bro. But, you know... <laughs> Anyway, so so success, I think, of course, you gotta you gotta have the quality there, but you also want to pay attention to making sure you can pay your rent and put food on the table, and you know not freak your parents out too bad. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. I just I wanted to highlight for our listeners, you did do something that most people won't do, and that's to take a step back to go where you want to go. You know, you were engineering records, yeah. and then you went to doing transfers, and you know, kind of yeah. relearning something. And that's, that's an impressive thing that a lot of people will fight. And I think a lot of successful people once or twice in their life end up doing something like that. And I totally agree with you on the financials. I mean, you know, art is art and we all love making art. It's also, you know, paying your bills is a mandatory requirement of something being your career. Otherwise it's a hobby. So if you don't want to make money, then you're, then you have a great hobby and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but if you want to have a career and support a family you know, there is, uh, there are financial aspects to that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick on that. Like I had a number of friends that I remember who were get into recording when I was kind of more in the recording phase and I'd be like, Hey, like, what are you charging? What are you? And they'd be like, I just do this, you know, on the strength, you know? And I'm like, man, I'm like, wow. I, I like, I just, I, f I feel like it's a disservice to not only the person you're working with, but to yourself, because, uh, the people you work with shouldn't expect you to do that kind of labor and expertise for free. Yeah. So last question that I have closed, uh, 49 or 50 episodes with what right now is your current biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Yeah, I got a number of goals right now. So I'm, I'm kind of in this period of transition, you know, Fortunately, my clients have come with me and I'm and I'm able to deliver like high quality work, but I'm kind of, you know, making sure that the uh, substructure of my business is is accurate. Uh, so my goal is to really make sure I've got sort of my my business image uh, out on social media, got the sort of the website correct, have the uh, substructure of the business accurate so that I'm kind of paying myself a salary. I mean, these are kind of more uh, business type goals. Um, I do feel very confident, I mean, not in a braggadocio way, uh, about the artistic uh, result and the content of what I'm able to achieve presently. Uh, but I am interested in making sure that the business grows. One of the first things I'm doing is I'm working on with a graphic designer on a, on a unique uh, logo design that I'm going to kind of be using for social media and the business. Cool. Uh, so that's one small step that kind of goes in that direction. Uh, so yeah, there you go. That's awesome. Well, I mean, you know, you've... Uh You've done a lot of work for a long time and you know how to master a lot of records and now you you have this new this new moment where you get to create your business so i would be, i mean i'm sure you're excited to like 
make every decision and structure it. And it's, I think it's awesome, dude. I'm, I'm really stoked for you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's absolutely true. And one of the great things is, is it does feel liberating a lot, you know, in a way. Like I said, you know, capital, it, I'm, I don't have a criticism of capital, but uh, when you're dealing with executive teams, you know, they have a vision and they have a, a set of priorities and it just may not be uh, exactly what you, you're wanting to completely do. Um, and so it's nice to just have the freedom to sort of interface with your clients the way you want to, create your image and your brand uh, for your business the way you want to, um, set things like rates the way you want to. All these things are really kind of uh, 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 exciting, really. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, that's awesome. Before we go, do you want to share with anybody website or socials? Uh, I'll put links in the show notes, but anything you want to verbally tell people on, on the show? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Insta. I mean, I'm pretty, uh, pr- pretty good with Instagram, and I'm on there. So I'm. At, it's at Evren Gochnar, E-V-R-E-N-G-O-K-N-A-R. Instagram usually kind of any kind of posts or activities that are happening uh, will be there. I also uh, obviously have you know LinkedIn, which is Evren Gochnar as well, and um, uh, Facebook as well. Evren Gochner, all the same, and I and a lot of stuff is there. I'm getting the website together. Uh, my book uh, is for sale at Amazon. If you just put in major label mastering on the Amazon search window, it's going to come right up. It's also on the Rutledge website. And so, yeah, that's really that's really it for now as far as uh, links and, and things like that. Awesome. Well, I will have all those in the notes for people to click on, and they find the book, and they can find you. But man, it has been uh, it's been good to see your face and catch up, man. This has been great. We gotta, you know, it's been awesome. get together in person now that people are doing that again. So make it happen. Absolutely, yeah. I'd love to do that. Uh, this has been fantastic. Appreciate the insightful questions, and uh, you know, thank you, Travis. So that's it for episode fifty. Thanks to Evan Gochnar for coming on the show. Definitely check out his book if you're interested in a career in mastering. Also, as usual, thanks to everybody for listening. You know, I appreciate all of your time. If you have been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or maybe sharing it with a friend. Both of those things help me out a lot with the growth of the show. And remember, we do have a Patreon set up now. If you're interested in supporting the show in that manner, it's greatly appreciated. There is a link in the show notes. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. It's a great hang, so don't miss it. I will see you all next week.